Hello, Aaron. Hello. You're supposed to say my name. Let's try that again. Hello, Aaron. Hello, Justin. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, anytime. Today, we're going to be talking about the hit film, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. Have you seen it? I have seen it. Where did you see it at? On a DVD. Was it a digital video disc? A Blu-ray disc? A HD DVD? It was on a beta tape. Was it on a beta tape? Ah, shit, my cat's in here. (laughs) Are we on NPR? Please get out. Now tell me more about this beta tape that you watched the movie on. I I don't know. Let's kill that. We are covering these spaghetti westerns. They talk a lot about the anti-hero. When we have that definition, it's basically just you're making a bad person the star of your movie. Is that kind of right? Yeah, that's how I always took it. Something I noticed in all these movies is they're never motivated by revenge. Like the main guy. We have other people who are motivated by revenge, but he's just doing his thing. And this is especially apparent in the movie The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly because these guys are not nice to each other, but they're never backstabby about it. I think the difference between a villain and an antihero is the world they inhabit has made them an antihero. Where a villain is just a bad person, but an antihero lives in this world or in this job that forces them to basically be a bad person, but not because they want to be, but because they just have to be to survive. So I think that's definitely Clint Eastwood's character. And most of the people in these movies, they are living in the Old West, which was just miserable. (laughs) And unless you were a farmer with a family that was just away from everything, you kind of had to be an antihero. At least that's what movies and TVs about the Old West has made me believe. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's all the line between reality and fiction starts to blur. Like people would say that Batman is an antihero and I don't think he's an antihero at all. I think he is like straight up hero. He's just dark. So people want to label him as an antihero. Batman's a fascist, but he's not an (laughs) antihero. Punisher is an antihero and that he's almost villain, but he's, I guess, the star of his own comics. So he's not a villain he's an anti-hero something that sticks out after watching these movies and that's the true of fistful of dollars a few dollars more and this one is that you never see the anti-hero happy or living his life you're always seeing him in motion onto a thing like at the end of every one of these movies he's either won or he's gotten money but we never see him happy yeah, well, that's what I think where the hero comes into anti-hero. He has sacrificed any happiness to go out and do the minimum of good while he's doing the minimum of bad he has to do in order to survive. Of these three movies, now that we've watched them all, which one is your favorite? I mean, I definitely think that for a few dollars more was better than a fistful of dollars because of the addition of Lee Van Cleef's character. Because he added like this romantic almost and that was kind of what was missing from the first movie when you add lee van cleef to anything and this is my first experience with him i fucking love this guy (laughs) i was surprised that he wasn't the same character in the good the bad and the ugly all right let's talk about this narratively clint eastwood's character the man with no name is the same in all three movies 
Maybe not, though. Maybe not, and I don't think it matters. Because he always has a different name. But it's always a name that he doesn't say that's his name. People just call him. Yeah. Yeah. Because they really, when they unveiled his proper outfit, when the movie is getting towards the end, that was my first big red flag is when they introduced him. Him not wearing the poncho was weird. Yeah, I thought so, too. And I love that they made a big deal out of it for the audience <laughs> and he found to, it yeah but did you realize here's something i don't know if you realize chronologically it's a prequel to the first two i don't why because it takes place during the civil war and the other two take place after the civil war so what you were witnessing in the good and the bad and the ugly is him finding his look for the two other films that's where he found his poncho no <laughs> You just witnessed a movie like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the, the cold open with River Phoenix where he found his hat and the whip and how he became Indiana Jones that we all know and love. I had that thought because of Lee Van Cleef's character being a military veteran. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great way of looking at it. I don't know, man. I want to know because that payoff is so good. But there's no, see, there's no connection. This is just film historians trying to put these films into some sort of sense, whereas the filmmakers didn't ever worry about that. Oh, yeah. Sergio Leone was not concerned with um, narrative connections between the three. And in fact, he wanted Eastwood to be in his next Western, which was uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, but he didn't want to do it. So for all intent yeah. purposes, that that could have been... A fourth movie where he would have been the man with no name. So one of the Wikipedia's claims because of ClintEastwood.net that The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is a prequel since it depicts Eastwood's character gradually acquiring the clothes he wears that takes place during the American Civil War, whereas the other two films feature comparatively more modern firearms and other props. Lee Van Cleef's character in A Few Dollars More appears to be a Confederate veteran. Oh, and a gravestone in A Fistful of Dollars features a gravestone dated 1874. There you go. So what's your favorite out of the three? Oh, yeah, I forgot. So The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, what was your choice? Well, for me, I have to compare what are what's better out of the first two, and I think the sequel is better out of the first two. But then I think that this movie is kind of in a league all its own. It just feels different than the other two. This movie is nuts. It is just nuts. It is nuts. It took me about an hour to really get into it. There was a lot of Tuco. And I wasn't hot on Eli Wallach's Tuco for like the first hour. He just seemed like an annoying sidekick. Like a Rob Schneider that just wouldn't shut up. I loved him so. And much. I was also like, "This is a this is a Jewish American guy from New York pretending to be a Mexican." This seems like just a ridiculous stereotype. But then, who knew this would happen? But all of a sudden, they were like, "No, no, no, no! He's not just an annoying stereotype. We're giving him a backstory, and we're gonna make you care about this guy." And holy shit, like you, you you meet his brother and you find out about what a bad guy he's been his whole life. And like he had like character development. So then by the end of the movie, I was all like, Tuco's cool. And it was such a weird thing. I never thought I would be there. I loved him so much from the beginning. Really? I couldn't stand. I was like, this guy, how could you be shooting this movie and thinking like, oh, this is going to look good. <laughs> It was so over the top with his portrayal of a Mexican to begin with that I just didn't know how it would 
how it would come together. So in my my rankings are a fistful of dollars, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and for a few dollars more. Okay, all right. But they're all good, so they're they're tight. But I just I liked how clean a fistful of dollars was. A little more straightforward. Yeah, but still confusing because I remember they it was like him playing families against each other, right? For no reason. It was great. He was just there to make some money off of both of them. Well, it was it's the kind of movie where you have to watch it and listen to the names because if you're not paying attention to whose name is what or what family name is what, you get confused. Yeah. That didn't really happen in The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. I thought this was complicated, but in a nicely uh, it had a nice flow to it where it never left you behind. I just love simple, straightforward storytelling. But don't you appreciate and respect when something like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly takes you on this crazy ride and then it all comes together? That's what I was impressed with. And that's why I feel like this movie really is in a league all its own compared to the other two. It's so well made. Yeah. It's hard to even describe why it's so good, but that ending... Oh, that ending was so good. And with the music yes. and the editing, holy shit. It was like an orchestra, <laughs> like in going to the crescendo and then... Whoosh. And I was reading about him making it. And again, the biggest failing of all of these films is that they never record audio. So they all have they have to dub the whole thing. Like the captain, or I think he was a captain of the Civil War and his whole story... Yeah, he was horribly dubbed. I don't even know what language he was speaking. And then uh, what was my point? Um, oh, so what Leone would do, I guess, would and especially for the ending, he would play the music that Ennio Morricone had already made for the movie. He was able to like shoot the movie the way he knew it would be edited. And I think that might be why it was so suspenseful at the end. And it worked. It worked. I was at. Oh, it went on so long. <laughs> um. I love the titles for all three of these movies. Like the title cards are amazing. But there, here's here's what I wanted to talk about: how goofy these movies are. So so goofy. They're so they're goofy to the point where I find it hard to believe people would take them seriously as classics. Like the way Tarantino talks about how amazing these films are, and I mean, he called the the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly the best directed film of all time and it was his pick for greatest film of all time yeah it is a great film but it's so goofy i don't know how you can really be serious about it the fact that they went out of their way to label everybody the good the bad and yeah. the ugly goofy <laughs> clint eastwood is the good lee van cleef is the bad and just the fact that they made to go the ugly right because i was thinking about that word and i was taking it the other way mm-hmm. where it's like how do you Call or he's the physically the ugly. Physical. He is another level of bad, is the way they describe him and set him up. And so they give everybody their own setup. So Tuco's setup was bounty hunters were after him, mm. and he killed them, and he ran away in a funny way. What, did he have food all over his face, or was yeah, he in a He bath? looked like he was getting a shave. Yeah, shave. That's, yeah. that's what it was. So they uh, tried to ambush him at a, at a barber shop. Then the bad is introduced. Lee Van Cleve is a bounty hunter and again i'm sitting here going okay same guy same guy but he was so much more cold-blooded you knew immediately something was off he had a romantic edge to him and for a few dollars more and he just totally cut that out because he i think he had a mustache in the other one didn't he like he looked like yeah he looked exactly the same but he just totally switched his character and i was like oh okay this is not the same person he's too cold-blooded so he kills some people and then he and he gets paid to kill 
He's, like that's yeah, he's, his, that's well, why he's he, the bad. Same, no, same concept as last movie. They were both paid bounty hunters. The bounty hunter is like you go and find the person dead or alive, and you take them somewhere to get paid. Angel Eyes, Lee Van Cleef's character, was literally like hired to go kill somebody. That's the difference, yes, I think. That's a good point. Anti- that's the difference between anti-hero to bad guy, to villain. It's during the intro for Lee Van Cleef, Angel Eyes. He accidentally learns about some gold. Mm. He had no idea about it. He was just there to kill some people. He gets a nugget of information about a guy that has a bunch of gold. Like $200,000 worth of Confederate gold. Which, considering the gun that he steals, or Tuco steals, was 20 bucks, that's millions in today money. So is Tuco, I already forget, because I watched the first hour like a week ago. Mm-hmm. Was Tuco in Clint Eastwood's introduction as the good? Okay, so we met Tuco escaping, being murdered at the barbershop. Yeah. And then we meet Lee Van Cleef's, and he kills a guy when he learned, after he learns about the gold. And then he goes back to the guy that hired him to kill that guy and kills that guy. And then Eastwood, yeah. I think, don't we meet Eastwood when he's saving Tuco from getting hung running the scam yeah. yeah I think so so he saves him he cut he shoots the hangman's noose and saves Tuco and Tuco rides but he's off, also right? the guy that brought him in yeah but I forget about that like do we see that he brought him in I mean we see if we don't see that time we see him the next time so we know that they're working together yeah they're just bringing in Tuco to get his bounty and then they're splitting the bounty and going to a new town and doing it again. And now he's even he's worth more. So he was worth 2000 and now he's worth $3,000. But I think that's when Eastwood is like, you're not worth the trouble anymore, well, right? Real quick, when I fell in love with Tuco was when they were reading off his list of crimes. <laughs> and happily, a website, uh, burrowowl.net, has collected <laughs> his list of crimes from okay. the times that they hung him. <laughs> And so I would like to read through yeah. Tuco's storied history. <laughs> Armed robbery of citizens, state banks in posts offices, arson in a state prison, cattle rustling, counterfeiting and passing counterfeit money, crimes against places of high authority, including burning down the courthouse and sheriff's office in Sonora, extortion, highway robbery, horse thievery, <laughs> illegal postal pickup, <laughs> Unlawfully drink, drawing salary and living allowances from the Union Army. <laughs> Receiving stolen goods. Robbery. Robbing an unknown number of post offices. Selling stolen goods. Supplying Indians with firearms. Theft of sacred objects. Using marked cards and loaded dice. Derailing a train in order to rob the passengers. Murder. Kidnapping. Assaulting a justice of the peace. (laughs) Raping a virgin of the white race. Statutory rape of a minor of the black race. Intention of selling fugitive slaves. Bigamy. Deserting his wife and children. Hired himself out as a guide on a wagon train. After receiving his payment in advance, he deserted the wagon train in the hunting grounds of the Sioux Indians. (laughs) Inciting prostitution. Misrepresenting himself as a Mexican general, perjury, promoting prostitution. I mean, I'm not I'm not all for capital punishment, but you gotta hang that guy. That's ugly. And I could see why Inciting that would be the name. Prostitution is my favorite yeah, word. I don't know usage. what that means. 
so they run the scam two or three times and so there's a different guy reading off and so there's right. different lists yeah. each time but just because this movie's great and they that's just a great detail i mean maybe each county doesn't even know about the other crimes that he did in that county you know they just have their own list so yes he saves Tuco. We learn it's a scam, but when they do it again, Eastwood's done with him. Like he says, like he's not worth putting up with. I, I don't think he really like. He just doesn't like him. He doesn't want to be around him. So this is what I. This is to me is is not that great of screenwriting, and this is what movies often do. Where I mean, Tuco even says like, you know, you don't betray me. Like people know better than to betray me. So what does Eastwood immediately do? He betrays him. <laughs> And I'm like, obviously, this is going to come back to bite you. And that's exactly what it does. So I found that to be a little like, eh, all right. I mean, I guess you're just moving the plot along. It's the concept of Eastwood not killing somebody unless there's a reason. Do we ever see him kill somebody for no reason? I don't think so. No. It's truer to the character, even though it did irritate me. Like, you're going to get in so much trouble later. Well, he left him to die. So that seemed a little harsh even for an anti-hero. Like, he could have just said, like, we're done, and then went away, and he left him in a town somewhere. Like, it didn't have to be yeah. the middle of nowhere. But maybe there's a reason that I'm not thinking that he he had to do that. So Eastwood goes and um, does his own... He starts to do his scam again. He has somebody else that's a willing participant, yes. right? Uh, but Tuco <laughs> it goes on this adventure and survives crawling out of the desert and uh, finds a gun... You know, and there's a, I guess there's a deleted scene that I didn't see in the American version, but it's in the European version where he actually encounters his posse again and convinces them to help him go after Eastwood. No, I saw his posse. Well, we see the version, but we don't see the scene. I didn't see the scene where he convinces them to come with him again, but they go and they find Eastwood. Yeah, he goes to like they're hanging out in some cave. Yeah, and he sits down where they're eating. I didn't see that. He's talking out loud about how they could make an easy four thousand dollars, and then you see three ropes fall down from the top, and his cohorts come. They're only in it. They, they. I don't even know if they speak, but they're in it for like what five minutes. So it just looked to me like a good cut. Like if they had to shorten the movie, it worked for me because it went immediately from him getting the gun and then to sticking up Eastwood when he was trying to do his scam again. Yeah. Then he's with the posse. So uh, to me, I was just like, oh, he just got his guys back or he has some guys now. But it didn't matter how he got them. I don't know. I mean, long story short, Tuco is looking for revenge because he never brings up the money because he takes Clint Eastwood out into the desert and marches him around because Eastwood left him, I think, what do you say, seven miles out of town? Yeah. Tuco's like, I'm going to march you 100 miles across this desert, you son of a bitch. And they go at least 30 or 40 miles. And they this movie does something that surprises me every time with these movies where... They really beat up these characters. We see Clint Eastwood scarred like crazy. His entire face is just a scar during this scene. I think this is what was important to Leone is that he really wanted to show how rough and shitty the Old West was, at least the way he understood it to be. He Even he knew that the John Wayne versions of movies were a romanticized version of the West where the hero was good and true. And he was like, nah, I'm sure it wasn't like that. But also, like, spaghetti westerns were B-movies, right? I mean, they were grindhouse films in a way. They they wanted to do things that push the envelope. And, and so be more grotesque, be more violent. He just happened to be an artist in the midst of that, of that schlock. I need to see... 
his other trilogy, whatever it's called. Yeah, I would like to. They call it the Once Upon a Time trilogy. Which are the same concept, a trilogy with no narrative structure connecting to them. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to me that the first two of that trilogy are Westerns. So there's the inherent connection. But then the last one not only takes place, uh, he didn't, you know, he made it like 13 or 15 years later, but it's also about American gangsters, you know, with Robert De Niro and James Woods. Yeah. Yeah. And they still consider it part of that trilogy. But see, the thing about that movie, Once Upon a Time in America, is that when they chopped that down for American release, it was a huge flop because it sucked. But if you watch the over three and a half hour version, that's the classic movie. So you really gotta, you gotta put in the work <laughs> to see yeah. how good it could be. Bleh. So where are we here? Uh, scarred Clint Eastwood. Like I was literally right. worried that he was going to spend the rest of the movie just uh, <laughs> scarred. I don't even know how to describe the sunburn that he got. It was a little much. So he's going to die. And this is where all these plot elements just kind of trickle in. Yeah, coincidence here is is pretty pretty far fetched, but I thought it was so cool in the clever way they had it come together, even though it was coincidental. So we're we're just hearing talk about the Union is on its way in. The Confederacy is retreating. Angel is it Angel Eyes? Angel Snake Eyes. Eyes? Snake Eye. Um, Snake Eye. Snake Eye has figured out that. The guy he is looking for that has the money had rejoined the Confederacy. He's going by the name Bill Carson. Going by the name Bill Carson. I want to name my dog Bill Carson. Like that would just <laughs> Bill Carson. Come here, Bill Carson. Because some people, most people have no idea what you're talking about, but you'll meet one person at some point that'll be like, whoa, did you say his name was Bill Carson? And he'll yeah, know. and it'll be awesome. So Tuco and Clint accidentally, or they see a runaway confederate carriage and tuco stops it and he starts robbing the dead bodies inside and who's in there we know he's in there because he has an eye patch yep bill carson bill carson and we just think he's dead but then oh bill's alive he starts telling him about the money so that tuco will save him and tuco has to run and get some water clint in his state crawls over there and is somehow able to speak with Bill Carson. Yeah, and he gets the whole story, yeah. plus the name of the grave, which is what Tuco didn't get. So Tuco knows half the story, and Eastwood knows of where the gold is. So obviously he can't kill him now, and he needs him. So that's where it becomes a search for gold, where all three characters are now looking for this gold. Eastwood's just like, okay, we're going to be on a team now. We have a mutual thing going on, and he doesn't try to get revenge on Tuco. They, right. they go about their business. They don't take anything too personally. And they just, or at least Clint. Well, see, Clint didn't know what cemetery. He didn't get that info, but he knew the name of the grave, whereas Tuco knew the name of the cemetery. So they both needed each other. And finding the money was more important than revenge at that point. But this is where Tuco, for me, became a character I actually cared about because before he was just a giggly, over-the-top Mexican stereotype. I was always just like, why are people so hot on Eli Wallach's performance in this movie? Because <laughs> it just seems a little ridiculous. But then yeah. this is where we get his character development. He's trying to save Eastwood, so they don the don whatever the Confederates' clothes, and they go to a hospital or uh, they go to uh, a, 
a monastery that's like been converted into a hospital. They're like in New Mexico. So yeah. some of the wars going on there anyways. And I think there was a scene where he found out where his brother was, but I as well, that scene was not included in mine. He, they just end up at this monastery and the monks like take him in and they nurse Eastwood back to health. And he just happens to run into his brother there. But you learn about in this sad way about how his brother had no faith in Tuco because he knew he was just a bad person ever since they were younger and they get in a little fight. I don't know. It probably doesn't really mean anything, but to me it, it, it built his character and I was like, all right, there's more to this guy than just the stereotype. Yeah. Yeah. They have that conversation that Eastwood hears and I think there it's where Eastwood likes him more than he did before. Yeah. This movie again, being goofy, they're on their path to the gold and they see an army riding <laughs> right. in. So and the gray. uniforms are gray. And they're so they're gray. All they're Confederates. Don't worry. We'll be friends. And then, uh, oh, wait. Oh, it's they're actually blue. They're just covered in dust because it's the <laughs> desert. Because they've been riding. So and far. the unions capture them as prisoners. Yep. This is the part that I find funny. We meet Snake Eyes again. <laughs> Snake Eyes. Yeah. Snake Eye. We meet Snake Eyes again because he's infiltrated the union army and yeah. somehow has become a captain now did you see where he infiltrated the army or do we did you just meet him no we just meet him yeah okay so maybe you did see the american and maybe i'm just not remembering the cave scene with him with tuco finding his posse maybe. so anyway but apparently in the european version there's a more in-depth thing about him actually arriving there and somehow sliding into a uh general you know has a union army somehow he infiltrates and people believe who he is who he is i don't know how that happened but i also like i also thought like he didn't have to like even pretend he could have just been a general i don't know that's where i was struggling was yeah was this a union officer who was also doing assassinations on the side with his criminal gang that makes it cooler or was it a criminal gang because i think it was criminal gang yeah Simply because he knew that the guy he wanted was on the Confederate side mm -hmm. and he was hoping to run into him at a prisoner camp. Yeah. So his dude, he's so his like number one that he's got with him, the big fat dude who's always beating up people for him. That's part of his gang. Yeah. He also is a fake union soldier is what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yes. I think that's possible. And they're just abusing prisoners, which is funny. And if you're going to pretend to be a union soldier anywhere, it probably would go over better at one of the camps where they were holding prisoners because all you, you have one job, just make sure they don't escape. So anyway, he, they're all in a line. And when they're asking for names, Tuco says, I'm Bill Carson. He pretends to be Bill Carson and Angel Eyes hears that. But he knows Tuco, so he knows he's not Bill right. Carson, but he immediately knows, oh, okay, you know the story of the gold as well. So then he comes and has him interrogated to find out more, and he then learns what Tuco knows about the cemetery, what cemetery it is. But he d but he realizes that Tuco doesn't know the name of the grave, which is what he needs to know. And that Blondie, I don't know if you've ever said that, but that's what they all call Clint Eastwood. And I think this is the number one thing that bothered me in the movie is that he's not blonde. He's got brown <laughs> goddamn hair. Why do people say he's blonde? I don't know. It might have been some sort of translation error, I guess. Yeah. But he. But this is what I like about this, is that they don't even... Uh, Angel Eyes doesn't even bother to interrogate Eastwood for the name because he knows that he would never tell because he's just that cool. Why not just team up instead of go through this whole interrogation thing? You're not going to tell me anyways. That just all That is added to how badass... Eastwood's character is is that like his reputation preceded him 
So then they cut out Tuco, right? Well, no, it's so funny because they only say it a little at the end. He sends his giant guy that kicked his ass to turn him in for the reward. Yeah. <laughs> like they're not going to miss an opportunity to make money. And so, yeah, he jumps on a train to go and the other guy. And they're uh, banded together, handcuffed. And then when the opportunity arises, Tuco leaps from the train with the guy, beats him to death with on a stone. And then this was a great scene where he can't get the chain off his arm. So what does he do? He puts him on the track and lets the train run over his uh, chain to, to break it and the body is under it. Which it's so fucked up. They showed. It yeah. was crazy. Yeah. And then he jumps on the train and he, he goes back to uh, get back on the hunt for the gold and even take more revenge. Like he's pissed off more than ever now. I was looking so hard because like Tuco goes back to it almost seemed like the first town. Not not the first town, but wherever he was going to hang Clint Eastwood. And he goes into a hotel room to get cleaned up because somebody said he stank a different bounty hunter or different guy goes after him. Yeah. And now that guy was seen earlier in the movie. But I don't, I couldn't recall where, because he only had one arm, so he stood out in some fashion, but I couldn't, I couldn't place him. But I knew that he was seen before, and Tuco, he was pissed at Tuco for something. So now he was able to find him. The guy's talking, and then Tuco just shoots him from the bubbles that he didn't know he even had a gun on him. He's just like, shoot, shoot, don't talk about it, just shoot, you know? Yes, it was was That's damn clever. Yeah. And then <sighs> this is the next part, which is super goofy. Clint Eastwood and Angel Eyes and his team are nearby in another bombed out area. And Eastwood hears the sound of Tuco's gun. And he says something to the extent of every gun has its own sound. So he knew it was Tuco by the sound of the gun. That's ridiculous. <laughs> but okay, we'll go with it. Eastwood just leaves, even though he's kind of a prisoner. So Angel Eyes sends somebody else after him, and then that's where he hooks up with Tuco again. Something I really like about these movies is how disposable the gangs are. These guys always use their people to just, as cannon fodder, it's great. So I never feel bad. They're just dumb Western guys. You're not smart enough to be me, so just go be a body somewhere. (laughs) So this movie is amazing in English. The fact that this is an Italian movie that they dubbed in Mm -hmm. the timing of the jokes like the acting is so good yeah if they had messed up the translations or the dubbing this movie would be terrible i even i even read that when they released it like 35 year anniversary or whatever they had eastwood and eli wallach uh redub some scenes that were originally cut out but found that were never dubbed. I mean, is your Clint Eastwood any better than it was last? Uh, probably Yours is not. better than mine. Yeah, mine's horrible, though. I don't want to do it. But he doesn't say much. I mean, the guy's got like five lines in the whole movie. Well, and one of them is coming up where they're killing off Snake Eyes' guys. Yeah, so they're teamed up. Again. And Tuco's walking down the center of the street, all badass. And then out of nowhere, Clint Eastwood kills one of the guys and Tuco looks at him and he's like, something about dying alone? Like, I forget what he said, but it was like, so quippy and so good. This movie has a lot of quips. So yeah, they go down and they shoot everybody and Snake Eyes runs away. I feel like this is taking too long. It's such a big movie. It's three hours. Ah, oh, we're getting close to the end because well, there's only no. one other set piece. Well, they got to go. They get in the middle of the Civil War at this point. I mean, they're part of that camp where they're Confederate prisoners. But once they get out of that and they team up again, now they go to the front line of a battle on the Union side. What is the point of having this in this movie? You could cut it all out. You could, could not but change. hearing the captain talk 
about his experience in that short set piece they made him such an uh, interesting character yes just his take on on it was just like leone's way of talking about how shitty war was i talked about how shitty the west was let's just have a little scene here where i can talk about how shitty war is and it's unlike any other war scene i'm sure that anybody had ever seen in 1966 there was like no reason to be there it was just everybody was dying for a cause that didn't matter. They just had to, for some reason, protect this bridge. But what the fuck did it matter? Even Eastwood and Tuco knew that if we just get rid of the bridge, everybody will go home. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what they do. They decide to blow up the bridge, and nobody's watching them, apparently, which I also thought was ridiculous. Or maybe the soldiers are watching, and they don't even care, because they're just like, we gotta go. <laughs> We're just going to let them blow up the bridge. But they're hiding on the beach afterwards, and they're getting bombed to all hell. I, it's so funny. The people that they are, they fall asleep yeah. during the bombing. And his ass is in the air, like Tuco. It's <laughs> so goofy. The fact that this movie had Tuco's ass coming out of the bathtub, I was surprised. So uh, they blow up the bridge and everybody goes home. The, all the, the battle's over because all the, the soldiers just get the hell out of there. Yeah. And then they're they're able to go to the cemetery. Finally. But I loved that war scene. Like I thought it was going to be another thing that was just like, ugh, can we just move on? But I was really enraptured by that captain's story about his woes. This was this was the one part of the movie that bugged me a little. So Tuco double crosses Clint Eastwood one more time by taking the horse and riding off. Yeah. But Clint Eastwood, being Clint Eastwood, shoots a cannon. Scares the horse, knocks him off. Yeah, so he's yeah. off the horse and he's not that far away. And then he shoots him again with the cannon and it blows up and again. He rolls from that second shot into a gravestone and ta-da, yeah, right. we're at the cemetery. Clint Eastwood's not far <laughs> away, and but Tuco doesn't seem worried about it, and he just starts searching for the grave like he's alone. And that's kind of annoying. But that happens often throughout the movie where they lose a character for a little while, only for them to reappear in a surprising but not that surprising way. The same thing happened when he found the runaway carriage. He just dropped what he was doing with Eastwood and spent all this time talking to the dying Bill Carson, only for Eastwood's character to, surprise, pop up right in the exact place right at the right time, Yeah, you know, to move the plot along. So I, I, that doesn't surprise me. I think that's just a, it's a plot editing device. Because it almost like they the music is so powerful and the editing is so powerful, and it kind of goes on for a little while. His search for the grave was so, whew, it's crazy. So long. That so long. It kind of makes the audience forget about any other character. So when they all of a sudden reappear, it is kind of a nice trick. I loved the layout of that cemetery. Yeah, beautiful. It was the circle was awesome. Some I read it was based on some sort of Aztec burial ground or something like that. Like he just liked the look of it. But yeah, it was amazing production design. They said they had thousands of or hundreds of people make like a thousand graves. Yeah, Tuco finds the grave when they were blowing up the bridge when they were strapping it with explosives they decided to tell each other just in case one of them died exactly tuco said where the what the cemetery was and eastwood said what the gravestone name was but of course he lied and it turns out it was the gravestone that was it was the unknown gravestone without a name that was next to the name he told him backing up real quick because that part bugged me a little because didn't clint already know didn't Snake Eyes tell him when he freed him that he knew the cemetery? I don't. I don't recall. I don't remember either. And so I, during that bridge scene, I thought that Clint was testing him to see if he was going to be honest with him because he knew. And then he was honest with him. And so I thought Clint was being honest with him. But no, still one more double cross. I've been working exactly. on Optimus Prime. 
Megatron. No, I lost it. Uh, Megatron. 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 Don't be a dick, Megatron. So it turns out the unknown grave is where the gold yeah, is. Yeah, right next. He to makes it. Tuco dig, but then here comes Angel Eyes to make both of them dig. Yeah. So now it's a three-way tie. Wait, I'm sorry. What happens here? <laughs> <laughs> so they open up the box and there's nothing in there. And Clint knows it. So that's why he had him open it. Okay, so he makes Tuco dig the grave of the name he told him, which was a lie. Yeah. And then Angel Eyes pops up and makes Clint dig the grave. Try, but it was the... already dug up. Right. Yeah. But that's when they all realize that Clint is not being honest and he still knows the name. So he says, you got to work for it. He takes a stone and says, I'm going to write the name on the bottom of the stone and I'm going to place it here in the middle. And then they all just get the idea like, oh, it's a shootout. So we all got to take our positions. And then 48 minutes later, <laughs> someone fires. No, it, 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 it's a little long, but the editing and the music is so powerful that you kind of are just like you go with it because you don't know who's going to fire first. It was stressful. But Clint was in control the entire time. He knew even though it was a three person shootout, Tuco was not going to be a player. Because he emptied his gun. He just wanted to kill Snake Eyes. He kills Snake Eyes. Tuco's like, you son of a bitch. And then the big reveal that there was no name. It was unknown the entire time. But unknown was the name. Tuco digs up the grave. All the money is there. $200,000. But then we have a twist. Another twist. A twist upon a twist. I don't I'm not, I don't care for this part. No? Is When Eastwood says, get up there and put your neck. Put the noose around your neck. What if Tuco just said, no. Like, was Eastwood just going to shoot him? No, he doesn't do that. It's literally him fucking with a friend, and it's great. Like, yeah, I need... But he knew I know that. He's too smart this guy for him to know that. The, in the same way that Clint listened to his orders when Tuco tried to hang him, he knew that he needed to get back at Tuco, but he wasn't going to do anything wrong because he's not a bad guy. And I was freaking out. I thought Tuco was going to die, and I was going to be pissed, even though he deserved to die. But yeah, so he leaves him hanging there. And then he does his old classic shoot the rope thing. Tuco's saved, pissed off. You son of a bitch! And then the bitch is obscured by the music. Isn't bitch the last word of the the movie? I don't think so. I I don't think he gets it out. I think it's overtaken. I think the audio is, is strategically overtaken by the yodeling, screaming, famous song that we all know even if you don't even know what movie it's from you know it's an old western song yeah it's good and that was the end of the movie with once again clint eastwood riding off into the sunset with a hundred grand yeah because he left half of it for tuco i mean he didn't double cross him on the money no he was being fair and that's it i think that's about it yeah i see that they had a treatment for a sequel that they never did, thankfully. Yeah, I think the the writers just, you know, came up with another idea, but Eastwood didn't want any part of it. Well, writers always do that. Well, writers are always like, well, let's do another one. Like, I got more ideas. Set 20 years after the original with Tuco pursuing Blonde's grandson for the gold. That just sounds terrible. And Joe Dante was going to direct, I guess. I'm sure it's... <laughs> I'm happen? sure there's not a lot of truth to it. Yeah. I mean, that that's like when they say that, that that means that for some reason, Joe Dante maybe had a meeting about it once or they had a dinner and they spoke about it. But that was as far as it ever got, probably. Yeah. So Eli Wallach, I mean, from this movie, he went on to just be kind of a really good character actor. And uh, we, we watched him in one of our films we covered here. He was in um The Two Jakes. What? He was? You remember the scene in The Two? Yeah, he was like the DA or he was a 
federal prosecutor that Jake Giddies would run into every once in a while. Do you remember the scene in the police station where whenever Giddies would come into this police station, he'd get a phone call like at the desk and it was always for him. Yeah. But the hotshot detective always just fucking hated Giddies. And he was like, don't answer that phone. Get out of here. You know, and then Eli Wallach comes in as the prosecutor and the phone's ringing and he's just looking at everybody. He's just like, is somebody gonna answer the goddamn phone? <laughs> so then they answer it and they're like, oh, it's for him. So then they got to give it to get anyways. That's Eli Wallach. I just... I just know him as like a, other than this movie, he's always just like an older Jewish guy that plays like a, like a lawyer. I'm not recognizing a lot of these credits, but there is a billion credits up until I'm assuming he's dead. Yeah, he died like in 2017 or something like that. Shoot first, Crazy Joe, Plot of Fear, The Sentinel, Domino Principle. Doesn't mean these are bad. I just have never seen them. Yeah, no, I think he's been in a lot of good stuff. He was in The Godfather Part 3. So we finally finally did the Dollars Trilogy. We did the Dollars Trilogy, man. Never saw any of them, and I appreciate them so much. From that scene in Back to the Future 2, where Biff is watching A Fistful of Dollars, or how Marty McFly figures out the whole bulletproof thing. Like, you know, I'd never seen the movie where it came. I always assumed it was from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I didn't know. And how, and how like... Eastwood is such a part of Back to the Future 3 and how he calls himself Clean Eastwood, right? And Oh yeah. You know, it's so funny. And he wears the poncho because of Eastwood. Like it's so about these movies that I had never seen and the only thing I knew was because of Back to the Future. That's what's so funny to me is that it took me 30 years or whatever, you know, to finally get around to seeing him. <laughs> I don't have anything interesting to add. <laughs> ponchos coming back. Let's let's start wearing ponchos now. We should just start wearing ponchos. <laughs> yeah. Could Eli Wallach play that character today? Not having really known who he was. Wow. There's a promotional photo of him for the good, the bad, and the ugly on his Wikipedia. And he looks like a fucking accountant. The role of a lifetime, really. That guy? Really? Okay. Your comparison to Rob Schneider was kind of apt. Was this one of the first movies with a goofy sidekick? I don't know. Probably not. I'm sure there was plenty like Dick Tracy, you know, had all kinds of caricature, goofy sidekicks in a way, you know, like in his TV shows and movies and comic strips, you know, from the 30s on and the Green Hornet with Cato, you know, Bruce Lee's character and stuff. I don't oh, know. yeah. Good point. Isn't it fun to have a foreign sidekick kind of way? So I was just afraid that that's what they were doing with Tuco, where I was like, is this going to be the whole movie with this giggly Mexican stereotype? Because I don't know if I'm going to be able to be a fan of this, but they turned it around gave him an actual uh reason to care about him so that was cool all right well those were movies and we're better people now than we were <laughs> that's true. and that's uh, that's it that's the end of the episode anyway tune in show up listen to us watch us and when justin gets a new dog it'll be named bill carson bill carson uh get onto our socials and tell us about all the bill carson that's you know check out the youtube the tube of views. That's a place to listen to us on the YouTube. Ben Carson. No. What is it? Uh, Bill Carson. <laughs> Bill Carson. Oh, yeah. If you name your dog Ben Carson <laughs> and you don't tell me for like two years, and you're like, why? Well, shit, I can't change it now. He knows his name. And people will do the up. same thing yeah. where they recognize the name for the wrong reasons. Wasn't Ben Carson the... Uh... Running for president? Didn't he die? Maybe he was the but, he was the guy that was running for president, right? He was like the doctor, but he was like an idiot at the same time. Yeah, total yeah. idiot. Age seventy one. Is he doctor. still alive? 
yeah, he's still alive. Okay. That's, That's good for him. Yeah. Good for him.